0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, Editor-in-Chief, and I have the pleasure today to be able to speak with Scott Jackson about the history of dermatology. Very exciting to me. Dr. Jackson is a dermatologist who is in private practice in Northwest Arkansas, and he's formerly affiliated with uh, Louisiana State University, where he did his training. But Dr. Jackson has a keen interest in the history of dermatology, which I am also very interested in as well, but he majored in history in college, and he's written a book on the history of dermatology, which came out this year, which is a fantastic compendium. So welcome, Dr. Jackson.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So this is such an incredible topic, and it's something that's so important for us as dermatologists to know about. So just, you know, high level, can you just give us an idea of of why should the practicing dermatologist know about the history of our specialty?
1: Well, I think there's a a lot of reasons, but the the ones that stand out to me are... um, this sort of sense of like connection or, or like a bond with the craft of dermatology that we can get if we study where our craft has come from to study its roots and how the specialty was was formed and how it evolved and and sort of where we fit into that history i think we can learn a lot from the historical figures for me, the life and career of Thomas Addison really stands out. It, it, had, it spoke to me on a personal level. So did uh, the life of Lewis During. These are two important 19th century figures in dermatology. Other things, you know, understanding a deep dive into this history will give us a you know, sort of a sense of the geographic and chronological scope and and intensity of human suffering caused by skin disease over the course of history. We can learn about, you know, mistakes from the past that were made, like the Tuskegee study or the Holmesburg prison scandal. In order to not repeat those mistakes, we can learn from like events like the smallpox variolation and vaccination movement. Uh, these are events from two to three hundred years ago that sort of have lessons for today. And as we are in the middle of a, of a pandemic, there's also treatments that have been shown to be effective from like Anglo-Saxon times that have been determined to be effective for MRSA. And and so we can we can look to the past for possible remedies uh, potentially. But mostly it's like this to garner a sense of pride and an appreciation for what we do, that there's some inspirational aspects that I think we can get from studying the career of, of people like Robert Willen, sense of gratitude for what we do uh, how awesome it is that we do this uh, incredible specialty and i think if you get that inspiration that gratitude that pride it can really help with things like physician burnout where you might you know be struggling with your calling you know starting to question things i think studying the history can really give you that impetus to kind of move forward with your career and and that certainly has has been the case with myself
0: I, I 100% agree. I enjoy reading history and and so many of the names of the conditions that we, you know we we deal with every day in our practices go so far back. So I know there's some interesting things to talk about. So I think my first question would be, when did dermatology really emerge as a formal discipline? And what were the events that surrounded that transition? And then maybe we'll have some time to go back earlier to some of the figures you mentioned.
1: Sure. So, I mean, if you really look at it, dermatology was born as a specialty in the 19th century, you know, and it kind of started in three places. It it happened in London, in Paris, and in Vienna. Those were the three primary schools of dermatology where figures like Willen in in London and Alibert in Paris and von Hebra in Vienna sort of did their thing. And and you know, kind of created clinics that focused on skin disease and started bench work with microscopes and sort of brought some science to the study of skin disease. So it was really a 19th century phenomenon, but it was something that was sort of built in the centuries prior. You know, I mean, it all kind of grew out of the the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and those events and the way like, you know, um, people started to think about things and had a little more desire for you know, empirical data and evidence based medicine and some of the qualities that we look for today those things kind of grew out of the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and that that led to the events of the 19th century ultimately that created the specialization
0: that's good so that's like a middle point we can sort of have you know right here and we'll go i'm curious as going back What did people do? What did things look like? How were things described before this era of scientific revolution? Reading through some of the things here. I mean, I was reading dates back in your book that go back to 600 BC or even earlier. So from those times, you know, maybe it's... Mythology was playing a role as well in, in in how people looked at skin disease because they didn't understand it, right. So they would you know would try to bring in other explanations. So I'm just curious about a little bit of framework of what things were like before we you know, we really had science to back it up.
1: Great question. You know, if you really look at it, the first literature, dermatologic literature, uh, if you will, was found in some of the papyri of ancient Egypt. So, you know, the ancient Egyptians left 12 or more medical papyri. And the most famous is what we call the Ebers papyrus or Ebers papyrus. And 19% of the content in that papyrus was, was, uh, 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 dealing with skin disease. Okay. And there was a lot of focus on hygiene and aesthetics and cosmetics. The Egyptians were the first to look at the skin as sort of a you know, skin disease is a reflection of internal health, especially gut health, you know, and they were the first to utilize purgatives, so laxatives to sort of empty the bowels. And their understanding was, is if you could release the corruption from the bowels, that would cause you know, your skin condition, your itching or whatever it was that you were dealing with to resolve, you know, the Mesopotamians. So the ancient Babylonians as well had the diagnostic handbook as their famous uh, collection of tablets that they left that had uh you know, 50 descriptive terms for skin lesions. They were very scientific about the skin, probably even more so than the Egyptians. I like to think of the Egyptians as sort of lumpers and the the Mesopotamians as sort of splitters. The Mesopotamians had terms for, you know, the morphology of skin lesions, distribution, color, dimension, consistency, some of the same things that we use to describe skin disease. The Mesopotamians were doing 2000 years ago. So it really, it really did start in ancient times. You know, you know, if you think about it, the you know, the human species has been fighting skin disease since since the beginning of the human species. And once history starts, which and history is defined as when we started writing things down, that's when we have now documentation that these physicians, these these ancient physicians, were being tasked dealing with skin disease. And it's very obvious that it was a major focus of the ancient physician.
0: And that brings something to mind, just like today where we refer to the term quack, right? As someone who tries to sell fake medicine on, you know, maybe it's at a fair or something like that where, you know, where there's that. But back in the day, back then at some point, there were actually real quacks. There were these people who tried to use fakery and showmanship to try to treat people or try to make them believe so what was the story behind that where did that all come from and how does it relate to dermatology
1: well great question you know very important actually i'm sure there were quacks in the ancient world uh to be clear i mean to me a quack is is defined as someone who knowingly tries to sell something to say a patient that may or may not have any sort of real scientific basis behind it But there's this sort of like almost intentional uh uh trying to dupe uh uh, the the patient into believing that the treatment is effective and i think that phenomenon has is sort of very common but really the heyday of the quack was probably in the the 16 17 and 1800s they were very difficult for the serious physician to deal with and to compete with and really as it relates to dermatology the quack was super important for skin complaints. And the reason is, and, and it's a really fascinating reason, is physicians in, say, that 200, 300 years, they didn't really want to be bothered with skin complaints. They thought it was a little bit beneath them to deal with, let's say, solar lentigines on the face or, you know, uh, wrinkles or, or things like that. Those things were just super beneath the physician. So the quack was there to kind of almost fill a void that, in, in you know, the population they were looking for, what do I do for this? I mean, and then it's fascinating because the same complaints that we have in our cosmetic clinics today are some of the same complaints from 500 years ago. And and so the quack was there to sort of fill this void where the physicians and some of the surgeons who just didn't want to deal with these, what were considered mundane, you know, unimportant complaints to the, this sort of a gentleman physician of that era, they were there to fulfill a void. But the, the problem is is that you know a lot of their treatments were dangerous and effective. It was snake oil, I mean, literally and figuratively.
0: Yeah, I think that's all very mysterious. If there was one disease, condition that was pivotal or has some of it a more fascinating history in in dermatology, which one would you, you know, think of? I mean, I thought of leprosy or Hansen's disease, but there may be others that you like no, to no i i would out. have to
1: agree with you leprosy yeah. i think the most inf- fascinating thing about the history of leprosy is how unfortunately any chronic often scaly skin condition was sort of lumped in with hansen's disease under this you know general term of lepra which got you know sort of it kind of morphed into leprosy in the in the middle ages but if you had psoriasis or like a chronic exeminous eruption and imagine you know no effective treatment at the time so you can imagine how severe it might have gotten you know there was there was uh, this sort of just uh, default uh, diagnosis of lepra and so lots of people throughout history were given this diagnosis and may have been ostracized and sent outside of the city or sent outside of the village for a you know, completely non-contagious illness. So that to me is 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 really fascinating. And then another, you know, fascinating thing about leprosy is how common it was in the Middle Ages. It was like one in 30 people had it in Europe in the Middle Ages. I mean, staggering numbers. And, you know, and so as far as it relates to dermatology, the medieval surgeon who was responsible for taking care of the medieval leper, he was kind of forced to sort of make sense of, you know, okay, who had leprosy and who had psoriasis? Uh, and there was no term for psoriasis at the time, but they, they were trying to figure out who really needed to be ostracized uh, in their system. And the two things that they kind of decided were that if that if the patient had facial involvement and if the patient had anesthesia in their lesions, then that would ultimately was called leprosy. Yeah. And then everybody else, if you didn't have facial involvement, didn't have anesthesia in your lesions, you were maybe given a diagnosis of, of, of something else. So dermatologic knowledge was at a premium at this time. And we're talking like, you know, the 12 and 1300s. And then, you know, here comes, here comes the Black Death in the mid 1300s, which was, in my opinion, a dermatologic plague in a way. You had the draining buboes, you had these purpura fulminans lesions and which were considered God's tokens. That's what they called them because death was imminent if those lesions were seen. And at the end of the 1400s, you have syphilis arrive in in Europe as a part of the Columbian exchange. You know, for the first time, Europeans were forced to deal with with syphilis. And so that was another um, uh, condition that drove this this desire and the and the european physician to gain knowledge about the skin and try to sort of tease out all these eruptions that they were becoming overwhelmed with
0: yeah and that brings up an interesting point because you know of course we're coming out of the pandemic here and there were so many pandemics that occurred over over history that you mentioned several interesting ones just there you know another figure that i thought was very interesting and you may think as well or you know another one was paul una from 1850 to 1929 from hamburg and it seemed like he was not sort of recognized for all the accomplishments that he made during his career But sort of at the end of his career, they realized what contributions he made and bestowed honorary professorship on him after retirement. What's his story?
1: Yeah, so Una is one of my personal heroes because he's he's considered dermatology's greatest freelance. And with me being in between faculty positions, you know, I kind of look at myself as such at this point. But the story about Una is that he never had a faculty appointment, so he wasn't affiliated with any of the great institutions of Europe. He kind of went on his own in Hamburg uh, in Germany. He started his own faculty. Uh, educational facility where he would allow people from all over the world to come train under him. He was super important. He invented aquaphor. He invented ichthamol, all of the the stains that we think of today, the idea of staining tissue and to look at it into the microscope to get a better sense of what you were seeing. That was Una. You know, he wrote not the first textbook on dermatopathology, but he certainly wrote the most influential. He described seborrheic dermatitis. I mean, so this guy was a true giant, and, you know, I think a lot of his colleagues at the time were sort of like, well, who is this guy? You know, he doesn't have a faculty appointment. He's sort of out there doing his own thing. And But at the end of his career, he was given an honorary degree at the local university and was you know considered a professor like emeritus. But he is like in the top three most important figures in the history of our specialty, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, incredible. I mean, do you have an interesting anecdote or a story that, you know, might give our listeners just a little bit of something interesting to learn that might whet their appetite to learn more about our history in dermatology?
1: I really think that we could all really do ourselves a favor by studying the career of Robert Willen, who we look at as a kind of a founder of the specialty. You know, he was the first to, well, he's not the first, but he offered out the most important classification system that we use today. So macules, papules that all sort of started with Willen and he codified the the nomenclature so he gave us psoriasis I mean he gave us all of the the language that we use kind of discarded some terms that didn't make sense, didn't really fit and then added some new terms to the nomenclature. so if you look at his contributions to our specialty it, it's just hard to find somebody that did more but I I think what would really, Impresses me about Willen is what a great person he was. I mean, he was a true humanitarian. He was very philanthropic. You know, he took care of the poor. You know, if you couldn't pay him, you wouldn't accept the fee. He would take care of you no matter what. And it was great for him. And his payment in return was sort of this exposure to the pathology in London, this, this amazing cutaneous pathology. And that's, I feel like that's, it's like his humanitarianism allowed him in, to put him at the Carey Street dispensary in London. And being in that position kind of allowed him to have all this exposure. And if he wasn't such a great humanitarian, he may never have been there to begin with but he was just a a true gentle man. He was was kind to his patients. He listened intently to his patients. And and so my argument is, is we really ought to look at these figures very carefully. They can really teach us something. And in this modern era, as we all get so stressed out and start to lose our way sometimes, these ancestors can really push us and get us back on track. And and so that's that's something I'm really passionate about is, is looking for inspiration in the past.
0: I couldn't agree more. There's so much to talk about. We can go on for hours here, but it certainly sounds like you're urging all of us to get out there and read and read some more and learn about dermatology. And from my reading, I see so many similarities between many people in our specialty. We have so many amazing figures now, you know, they're currently still innovating and still creating history and, and still being excellent humanitarians and, and doing what's good and right for our, our planet as a whole. So any final thoughts, any that you want to share with us and, you know, where can, our listeners go to learn more? What would be some good resources for Great,
1: them? great question. Oh, well, there's, you know, there's the History of Dermatology Society. You know, they meet every year at the AD. You know, I have a website called historyofderm.com that I run where I post articles about, about the history of dermatology. We have lots of articles out there that, that are often found in our journals and PubMed searches for history of derm articles is is a great resource to if you have a particular figure that you're interested in. I can promise you, you'll find a a research article about that figure. So uh, there's a lot out there.
0: Yeah, I agree with everything you say. And with the history of dermatology society, I actually had the pleasure of going to their meeting at the last AED in Boston and was able to actually go to the Harvard Library. Got, there's a historical medical library there that we all went to, and they had some unbelievable manuscripts, handwritten notes from residents in dermatology that had trained there. They had all kinds of models and, and specimens and just so many interesting things. Uh, they used to take molds of surgeons hands where they would come to Harvard to do surgery from other visiting surgeons. They would take a mold of their dominant hand and and they have those to, to um, they have saved as you know, these hands perform amazing feats. So Scott Jackson, this was incredible, certainly a lot to learn, but inspiring as well to have you come in and all the effort you put forth to create the publication and just your passion for the history of dermatology. So, uh, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Dialogues and we'll certainly look forward to more from you going forward.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.